You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human activities on the planet. Join Future Net Zero founder Summit Bowes, along with environmental campaigner Angus Forbes and analyst Alex Millward. There will be some strong language. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Gaia Says No. Can you believe it? Wow, 11 shows in. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. We've had more than 2,000 downloads so far, and the numbers keep going up. Staggering. So um, really, really humbled by it. And clearly something to do with me, but clearly to do with the amazing guests we've had, and dare I say, Alex and Angus. Um, Today's episode, we'll be looking at... I suppose the concept of the sting in the tail. What if we don't do things? What if we carry on as we are? You know, we've seen with coronavirus, perhaps the uh, consequences of our own behavior. No one knows whether it came from a laboratory, whether it was just crossed over the species border, but was it to do with the way we've, we've lived our lives? You know, what will happen and what could the planetary systems do to us if we don't try and do something to make things better? But on the other hand, could we find that we're taking actions and they have unintended consequences? So it's a complex sort of system that we want to discuss today. And I'm delighted to introduce uh, our special guest, uh, Professor Michael Dupletch. Michael, good, good morning to you. Good morning to you and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now we'll, we'll uh, get you to do a full intro in a moment. I would love to say that my buddies are here, but I've only got a buddy today, just Angus. I am going to channel my inner schizophrenia. I'm going, I'm going to be half Angus and half Alex today. Do that, do that. Apologies, ladies and gents, but Alex can't make it for the first time in, in 10, 11 weeks because actually he's got a job to do as well. So we, we couldn't stop him there. But he's with us in spirit and he will be back for our final episode. Do you want to tell people a little bit about your background, Michael? Because you share something with me, which is, although I did microbiology, you did the thing I should have done, marine biology. But you've had roles in sort of governmental bodies, you've worked across the world. Could you just give us a little summary of, of your experience, please, for the audience? Yes, I certainly can. It's a dangerous question to ask for a couple of hours, but uh, I'll try and be brief. So, uh, yeah, I went to um, uh, London University, to a small college there, Westfield College, and studied uh, biological sciences, but nearly all of that was marine biology, which I I absolutely loved. And I I then went on to do a PhD at London University's marine station up on an island on on the west coast of Scotland. So that, Not, was that wasn't Millport, was it? It was Millport. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> yeah, it was um, a beautiful place to be, a yes. very old marine station in Scotland. And uh, I did a rather weird kind of PhD. So I was looking at the uh, interactive effects of uh, environmental stresses, things like temperature and oxygen levels in the water and the salinity of the water, the saltiness of the water and how pollutants added to that mix to stress out things like crabs and shrimps. So I developed a technique for measuring the health of crabs, which involved measuring their heartbeats. And so I had crabs on the end of wires running around on the seabed, having their heartbeats measured, um, which was good fun. It sounds like (laughs) something that's come out of Angus's head, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But um, 
then I needed to, to get a job and I'd been learning to dive and yes, fortunately yes. I got a, a blocked ear and went to the doctor, a uh, college doctor, who said, what do you do? And I said, I measure crab heartbeats. And he rolled around the office laughing and said, why don't you do something worthwhile with your life? <laughs> I thought that was a bit rude. Um, but um, anyway, I moved. He, he got me an interview, actually, at the Brompton Hospital. And I went there and started looking at heartbeats in babies uh, to mm. try and detect cop death. And then wow. I got involved in, in looking at respiratory function in humans and ended up working on the very first bone marrow transplants that were carried out for patients with leukemia. And about half of them died from lung problems. Yeah. And I, I worked on that problem for a long while. And then I cleared off to Hong Kong and started working on environment and human health impacts. And that's been pretty well my career. I ended up um, in Denmark after Hong Kong, built up a big research group there looking at effects of pollutants in the marine environment on animals and people. And then came back to UK, set up a new research centre in Plymouth, and then got hired by the government's environment agency to be their head of science. Uh, did that for about four or five years and then left. Government was such a joy to work with that I felt I had <laughs> enough. Uh, and came back to southwest Britain to what was at the time the Peninsula Medical School, the joint venture between Exeter and Plymouth University and managed to liberate uh, 20 million euro from the EU to set well, up the, the, <laughs> you, you wouldn't get hold of that now. <laughs> no, <I don't. laughs> so we set up the European Centre for Environment and Human Health within the what is now the University of Exeter Medical School. And we have around 100 people working there on uh, threats from the environment to health and well-being and opportunities to use the natural environment to foster improvements in health and well-being. Yeah. So um, and, and, that, that, that's pretty well it. Sorry. And that's sorry. the interesting thing because you've done a bit of the environment, but also the effects of humans. I mean, I think in you know, Angus, we're going to do a slightly different format today, ladies and gents. So Angus will be chipping in as well. But I suppose the thing that really struck me um, is that we, when we talk about the dangers of planetary change, we talk about climate change, whatever, we're really talking about ourselves, aren't we? We're, we're being very selfish because the planet has been hotter, the planet has been colder, the planet has been far more toxic. We're really talking about humans, aren't we? When, when, when we talk about, oh, you know, if we don't take these steps, then the planet system will collapse. Would it really collapse? Would it just be different? We may lose species, but fundamentally, the actual ecosystem that you, you've studied, Michael, that, that would continue, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And, uh, and I think that sums it up very well. There's, um, be, you know, there's been this amazing book, Sapiens. I don't know if you're familiar with yes. that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought the, the author, shoot, I've forgotten his name, but anyway. Harari, uh, Yeah, Harari, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the great thing about that book was he does make a very powerful case for uh, us not fooling ourselves. There are so many people saying, oh, we're doing it for nature, we're looking at the poor yes. animals, rats, and whatever. But I, I do agree. I think we, we are doing it for ourselves. And... You know, if we weren't here, there wouldn't be this sort of debate. So uh, I think it is very much about ourselves. And I think a lot of what's motivated my work has been that there are two sort of areas that people particularly care about. Uh, one is their economic status, in other words, their ability to survive because of the resources that they have and can use. 
So that's a whole economic driver, and we could we can discuss that. But the other side of it is their own personal health and well-being, or perhaps more particularly that of their parents and that of their children and the health and well-being of their friends, the people they care about. And so I think um, when we're dealing with anything to do with the environment, that really it all feeds back into, into that sort of um, nexus of, of can you have a livelihood and are you fit and healthy and will you lead a reasonable life? Angus, you, you're, you know, nexus, what a good trigger word. It's almost as if it was written for you, Angus, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've read his, his book, Michael. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great one, but the GPA. I mean, you know, that's the thing you've always sort of argued at, haven't you, mate, that we, we're at that point where actually we, we sort of influence ourselves because of the way we act with nature. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the point that I, I, uh, I felt that I've been taught by people like, um, you know, Mike DePledge and people who have been in the field for, of ecosystem services analysis for the last 30, 40, 50 years is that this nexus is, is never going away, assuming that humans, the power that we hold now as a race of 7.6 billion and our mastery over, or, you know, or nascent mastery over chemistry, mechanics, industrial processes, etc., our interface with the environment is, is never going to stop uh, because we hold that power. So yeah. if... Um, and I'm sure Mike is absolutely right because he's he's watched how humans have sort of felt the environment and felt Gaia and said that it still comes down to their economic status and and their personal well-being. And if that is a constant, then we've got to work out a way of the whole human race interfacing with Gaia. You know, we've got to work out. And that's why, for me, it, it comes back to governance uh, at the end of the day. Whilst everybody can do their bit and everyone can have a light footprint and reduce their unintentional consequences, because this is permanent, I believe it results in a governance issue so that people can get on and make a living and they feel safe and secure um, yeah. in their well-being. Um, so, yeah, it's an exciting topic. Mike, before we start talking about possible scenarios, when you were working at the Environment Agency, which most people will know in this, in this podcast, and if you're listening from another country, it's kind of a governmental body that helps protect the, the UK's um, environmental rivers and the, the way we, we interact with it. How often was that an issue that you found, which is that positioning of this is good for the environment, but this isn't good for the people in terms of the finances or their feelings around it. And how did you navigate that tricky thing of getting people on board for changes that could be quite fundamental for their own financial well-being in many cases? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a very um, interesting experience at the Environment Agency, and there were some very clever people doing some really great work there. But I think um, when I joined the Environment Agency, I thought it was um, primarily an organisation that was going to be uh, incredibly proactive in trying to stop damage to the environment, whether it is through pollution or anything else. And um, it isn't quite like that in a sense, because an awful lot of what the Environment Agency was doing was um, sort of putting the foot on the brake a bit, but not stopping the, the, the car completely, if you see what I mean. So for example, it was working out how much pollution you could put into the environment. It was working out how much uh, air pollution there could be without it having 
damaging effects on health and, and, um, yeah. and nature. It, it, would it be fair to say it was kind of letting us know how, <laughs> it sounds weird, but it, excuse me, but kind of how much we can screw it up and get away with it is what yeah. I kind of think. You know, I'm yeah. going to build this building. Okay, environment manager goes, well, you can get away with that because it won't do that much damage and here's what you can do to mitigate the damage. Is, it, is that yeah. the way rather than... That, yeah, that is the way. In, in, in my view, that is the way. And why it was like that was because um, they didn't want to interfere too much with the possibilities of making money. Mm. Uh, because, you know, people do need jobs. They do need livelihoods. We do need things uh, in our lives. We do want cars. We do want, you know, nonstick drying cans. You do need to manufacture stuff. Um, so it was trying to find a, a balance between um, letting all those things happen that people seem to want in society and making sure that the damage wasn't uh, significant or too severe. If you look at it as a global picture and you've, you've been around the world, everyone's the same, isn't it? Every government has that issue of trying to balance what people want for their livelihoods against what you might want as a scientist to say, let's stop fishing here or let's do something to clean this river here and, and stop these actions. Yeah, I mean, it's an immensely complex um, picture. And what I would suggest is that um, one of the things that we neglect very often is having a, a long-term historical perspective of how things got like they are, they are today. And that is, I think it's just worth reminding everyone that, you know, there have been probably about 120 billion human beings who have lived on this planet so far. That myth about there are more people alive today than ever before is, is exactly that. It's a myth. Yeah. There have been about 120 billion people before us. But wow. on any time on the planet previously, there have probably not been more than half a billion people alive at any one time, up until 1804, when the United Nations estimate there were one billion people on the planet for the first time. So if you think about that, about half a billion people scattered across the planet in all previous human evolutionary history, then they would have local effects, but they weren't having planetary effects. Yes. But as we've gone from 1 billion people in 1804 to whatever it is today, maybe 7.6, maybe getting up to 8 billion people, that's really changed the picture. And when you think about it, those 8 billion people who are alive today and all the ones who've lived previously have only ever lived on about 10% of the Earth's surface. The reason being that 70% of it's ocean, and the 30% that's land, a lot of that land is desert, mountains, uninhabitable space. So what you've gone from is one, well, less than 1 billion people to about 8 billion people living on 10% of the Earth's surface in a period of uh, a couple of hundred years. And to meet their needs through um, their energy needs, for example, and those energy needs being converted into material goods, uh, stripping resources out of the earth, traveling around the earth, expending energy in all kinds of different ways, particularly cars uh, and other vehicles. You can see it's been a massive shock to the earth's system. And if you look forward, um, all the trends show that we will continue producing more and more yeah. goods and yeah. uh, it will end up in the environment. I suppose the thing that uh, we look at is, you know, and Angus, feel free to chip in here. We, we've always looked at it as we're on an exponential curve of development. You know, we, we get better. The next generation gets better. We live longer. 
we do better things. We, 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 we try and uh, improve our lot. Um, have we reached the, the, the point where actually, from what you've just said, with the amount of people on the tiniest bit of land on the planetary surface, we're kind of reaching a point where we really have to look at the damage now is absolutely hand in glove with the advancement. Yeah, yeah exactly, me, because, because yeah. yes, um, yes, that is, that is exactly it. I mean, one of the um, things I've been interested in is this debate about air pollution, for example. And, you know, there are, allegedly anyway, there is something of the order of 9 million deaths a year from pollution, and an awful lot of those are due to air pollution. So at the moment, there are sort of recommended levels of contaminants released into the air by the uh, World Health Organization and the UN and other bodies. And um, quite often those levels are being breached, and so that we know there are an awful lot of deaths brought forward in the, in the UK in particular, maybe about 28,000 deaths brought forward in the UK due to air pollution in London and maybe 30,000, 40,000 in the country as a, as a whole. So my question is, so what are we doing about that? Um, there are at least 80,000 chemicals in common use and probably maybe 150,000 chemicals that are used more uh, widely around the world. These chemicals in one form or another, a large proportion of them get into the air as dust or as gases or other materials, you know, microparticles and so on. The question is, is it acceptable to be breathing this kind of air at the moment? And if the amounts of chemicals continue to rise in the air and the air pollution gets worse and worse, is that going to be acceptable? And at what point do we say that it's unacceptable? What are we aiming for? What would we like the air in mm. our cities and in our towns and in the countryside, what would we like the air to be like? We have no kind of clear vision of what is acceptable. That's also true of what is acceptable to be in our water that we drink yeah. or in the soil around us or in the food. And I think that one of our, our challenges is we can either stumble into the future and just see what happens, which it seems to be where we are at the moment, or we can decide what kind of future we'd like to have and aim for it and put in place through, for example, the Global Planetary Authority, uh, controls, regulation, guidance and, and measures to ensure that we achieve what we want. But just stumbling around trying to control bits here and there doesn't seem to be working. Angus, what's your take on, on, on this? Well, it doesn't feel very 21st century, does it? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very enlightened. And, and I, I just love the way that Mike just put that historical perspective, you know. And to me, it's um, as terrifying as it is, it's also incredibly exciting because I think we're, we're the most connected we've ever been as a global citizenship. So if we pause, if we really believe in our own strength and our own ability to control our future and decide, we can realize the point in history that we're at, which is, you know, this is going to continue. We've, we have unleashed the shock. Let's decide what we're going to do at this interface. And Mike, you... I know, as you were talking, two things sprung to mind. One was that wonderful quote by Homer Dixon in 2010, when he said, governments are ever more forlornly trying to manage increasingly painful trade-offs between mm. people, planet, and prosperity. It's because of that power, isn't it, that we've, we've released. And the second thing that you just brushed past, 
was, was the oceans by mentioning 70%. And we had Claire Brook on the other day. And she said, you know, and she's in charge of a Blue Marine in Cambridge. And she was just exasperated, simply. She was saying, if, if one, you know, the two words to describe the, the state of, of humans and the oceans right now is the Wild West. Yeah. It's, you yeah. Know, we're having, having gone after coal and having, you know, done whatever we've done on land, we're just turning our attentions to the oceans. Is that, is that what you're seeing? Yes, it is. And in fact, um, you know, because of my marine biological background, my deepest interest has always been in the oceans and the interaction with people. And in fact, back in the, um, when was that? It must be about 1998. I was, and still am actually, a trustee of the Bermuda Institute for Ocean Science. Um, and we, we got a bunch of people together from leading US universities and UK universities and around the world. Uh, to run the first conference on a major international conference on oceans and human health. Yeah. And at that time, we invited the, um, the U.S. funding agencies, National Institute of Health and the National Science Foundation, to come along and see if they thought there was actually a, a scientific area, discipline of oceans and human health. And happily, after the meeting, they agreed. And they set up five centers in the U.S., on oceans and human health that were added to by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration and two more. So for a number of years, um, they've, they've funded oceans and human health research, uh, which I've been intimately in, involved in actually. And um, mm -hmm. indeed the director of the center I set up in, in Exeter is a former head of one of those US oceans and human health centers. And uh, over the last um, five to 10 years, we've managed to launch a program in Europe funded by the, the European uh, Commission on the oceans and human health. And I can tell you that um, there's a, a massive surge in interest in this area, but not only trying to sort out the threats of which there are many, as your, your colleague, pointed out, colleague pointed out, but there are also huge opportunities to foster improvements in health and well-being through programs like the Blue Gym, Blue Health and those kind of things where we get people who wouldn't normally venture onto beaches or go for cliff walks and so on, to get out there and be physically active and get mental health benefits. Clearly those sorts of initiatives have come to the fore with the global pandemic, as people now realize that um, they need to be outdoors for some of the time yeah. and they get physical and mental health benefits. So we've been running programs globally on the oceans and human health. And what one initiative I should just uh, mention at the moment and the island of uh, Tetiaroa, which is off Tahiti, there's a group of people there, very wealthy, well-connected people, who are getting together uh, a thing called the Blue Climate Initiative. And they're taking groups of scientists from all over the world to come up with smart ideas about how we can uh, use the oceans more sustainably, protect the resources within them, and at the same time, you know, learn to live sustainably with the oceans, perhaps by um, exploring, you know, living in habitats on, in coastal waters or perhaps even in the ocean, open ocean. So it's a very exciting area to think, could we actually be using different parts of the ocean to live on sustainably using renewable energy and renewable marine resources? I think the thing is that I want to talk about threats in a second, but uh, just finishing off this bit, if you look at what you've just said there, you know, the, the classic example is that in the past, we lived better with nature. 
you know we took what we wanted we ate very little we foraged etc but we were living very short lives we were generally very ill very quickly uh, and we died quite young from various diseases have we, have we created something where actually now our expectation and yet our ambition cannot be met i.e. We, we, we expect to have all the things we said, which you've just outlined, but then the other part of us goes, hang on a second, uh, you shouldn't spoil that beach. Oh, no, but hang on, if I don't go and spend money there as a tourist, then the locals, what are they going to do? And Are they going to overfish the, the turtles or whatever it is? It's, it's a really interesting point where now we can lecture or we can say that we want to protect, but at the same time, we've created the system where our very presence is needed sometimes in some of these places that are very vulnerable to, to, to allow the, the, the functioning of those economies. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, this is what some uh, social scientists call a, a wicked problem. It's got so many facets, it's really quite mm. hard to define what the specific problem is. But it's something around the fact that um, there are so many of us and we have a heavy impact on the environment. And the more we want to live safely longer lives and with with resources the more that that impact grows but we also know at the same time that um although we may live longer lives they may not be very much happier lives in in some circumstances for example the world health organization suggests that by 2030 the biggest medical problem on the planet bar none you know more than malaria more than aids more than any other uh, disease you can imagine the biggest problem will be uh, mental health disorders mm. and so and yet know, we're living in a time that our, our ancestors wouldn't have believed in terms no, of exactly and um, so to, to try and reconcile and come up with these things I mean our economic system um, drives us and constrains us in the choices that we we make doesn't it so when we talk about people wanting to be wealthier and, and so on, we also at the same time are faced with this thing that the disparity between the poor and the rich in terms of wealth is growing ever, ever larger. It's massive. So um, when we want, when we talk about fueling the world economy and things getting better and we need to do it, um, actually the, the personal economic situation of so many people is only improving very gradually. And that's the big challenge, isn't it, Angus? is how do we allow people to live a better economic life at the same time as trying to protect what we have? Well, I've always felt, um, well, I think there's, gosh, I mean, this is a big topic now. Um, But um, first thing to say is a sustainable planet benefits the poor. Let's let's make, you know, that that is absolutely clear. You have oceans full of uh, healthy fish, um, and you have no climate change, then the poor of, of the world are going to be better off. Um, I, I have always felt that, that capitalism um, and um, humanity is ready to take on strong biophysical boundaries. I, th- I think the innovations that we will see, maybe it'll be a, and, and hopefully a combination of both wealth distribution and the provision of human services being much lighter from an industrial um, metabolism point of view. I, I, I think we'll get. I think we'll get the double. I think if we commit to Gaia, if we commit to robust biophysical boundaries, if we commit to a, a, a vision of 
the human environmental nexus that we really believe in. I, I, I truly believe that our mental health will be better, the, the ability to um, um, house ourselves, clothe, and, and medicines will be better. And, and I think also we're entering an era where we just have to close that, um, that wealth gap. So let's just keep committing to Gaia is, is my belief. Let's talk about uh, nightmares. Uh, <laughs> uh, Michael, it's your turn. Give me the doom and gloom. I mean, look, all joking aside, you could say, and no one knows fully and maybe we'll never know, was coronavirus uh, an escaped virus from a lab? Was it something that crossed over from uh, a species in a wet market? But let's put that aside. This is just a symptom of one thing, and which is, I suppose, the thing that really has shocked the world, is that we've always thought, no matter what it is, we're in control over the last, probably, since the 1940s, 50s. You know, once we invented penicillin, once we got that thing of basically we know how to tackle the vast majority of diseases that are killing us by developing vaccines, we thought, hey, sky's the limit, we're, we're impervious. What sort of things could be down the line for us? And is it just nature throwing this back at us when you could conceptualise, is it Gaia's revenge? Or is it, you think, the biggest shocks will be our activities, as you said, these wicked problems, creating far bigger threats than we could have ever imagined? Yeah, I mean, a simple answer to that question is I think it is the wicked problems because um, what, we've, what we've learned about um, so many problems that arise is that our science and technology on specific problems uh, works really quite well. Can you explain uh, to the audience an example of a wicked problem so they, they get it in their mind? Yeah, uh, well, for example, uh, a city. So if you uh, imagine what, what's happening with a city, you're, you're doing a number of things. So you're creating a, a wonderful, vibrant environment with lots of um, diversity and lots of cultures, wealth generation, you know, att attractive things to do. Anyway, so the, you know, people are attracted to these places where there are jobs and what, what have you. But as soon as you start concentrating people, then you also concentrate all their waste. So how do you get rid of the waste? The other thing is you're concentrating uh, their energy use. And when you use energy, you generate heat. So cities generate a thing called the heat island effect. So how do you dissipate the heat? And um, if you have lots of motor vehicles coming to uh, that city and moving around in it, you generate air pollution and, uh, and so on. You know, there are many other things mm. you can think of that cities create. So lots of benefits and lots of threats. So what do you want to do about it? Well, perhaps one of the things you could do is create some parks in the city and put some ponds in the parks to um, help deal with the air pollution, create quieter places and, and so on to, to keep people's health and well-being in reasonable shape. So you decide to do that. Or you create suburban drainage schemes where, you, again, you build housing estates on a slight slope so that if it's if there's heavy rain, instead of them flooding, the water all flows down in one direction into a great pond area uh, away from the houses. So here you're coming up with sort of solutions to some of the difficulties in the cities. But then you run into the unintended consequences because perhaps if you've created these ponds and green spaces, you're also creating spaces for mosquitoes to breed or for midges and you know, disease to be transmitted in, in, in that way. 
So whatever you do, there's usually an unintended consequence. So I don't like the term that we, we get out there and we solve problems. We rarely solve problems. <laughs> usually we move from one problem onto another. And the, the concept of wicked problems is that you take the sum of all those kind of things that I've mentioned and view that as a current situation. And then you gradually, or, or maybe quickly, adjust several of them at once to try and end up in a slightly better situation. And that seems to be how the world progresses. You don't really know, you never really solve a wicked problem and you're never quite sure what the wicked problem is. Yeah. But at least you get this collection of difficulties that are facing you and you realize there are many and you deal with them in such a way as to move to a better circumstance. And that's how we think we can progress in the future. There are environmental improvements, there are social improvements, there are economic improvements. And you have to move that basket of those things along to a better place. That's where we get problems. Would, would our biggest threat be something like a virus? Well, it was, so when I was in the Environment Agency, I, I worked with um, the, the government's um, Chief Scientific Advisory Committee. Sir David King actually was the Chief Scientist then. Mm. And um, he, well, I think they'd already existed, but he, he was very good at identifying um, a, a kind of a risk register and putting on the, on, on the scales of a graph, uh, which were the, uh, the most likely and the most yeah, impactful like risk. war, things like that, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And pandemics were right up there. So, um, you know, I think we have recognised that they're a major, major threat. But I, you know, we're doing a classic thing, and it's partly um, driven by the way that science has progressed. So, science used to be back in the in the eighteen hundreds or before was a pursuit that was really um, uh, sort of natural philosophy. You just kind of pursued different areas, and it didn't matter whether you were looking at physics and meandering into chemistry and looking at biology. It didn't matter, but as science has progressed since um, the 1800s, we've tended to fall into silos. And as we fall into these different silos, so the problems that we look at become siloed. So I get very anxious when we say that climate change is the biggest threat to humanity. Yeah. Because if you go and talk to another bunch of scientists, they'll tell you that biodiversity loss is the biggest threat. Absolutely. Or uh, another group will tell you it's pollution, isn't it, clearly? or it's demographic change in overpopulation, and, 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 and. Of course, it's not one of those single things. Imagine we could magic away climate change tomorrow. If it mm -hmm. didn't exist any longer, do you think we'd be all right? And the answer is clearly no, we wouldn't, because biodiversity would still be lost, pollution would still occur, and so on. Pandemics would still occur. So it's the integrated impact of all of these things, and they arise because of the way we live uh, and there are so many of us, and it's the way where we, the way we are living, when there are so many of us, is causing uh, the, these threats, or giving rise to these threats. So I think um, you know we have to go back to square one and realise that we are intimately inter interconnected with the environments in which we live, and that unless we learn to live in them in a sustainable way treading lightly on the earth and having less impact, then we will see these problems persist. And actually, if we do learn to live sustainably and live lightly on the earth, 
um, many of them will disappear because climate change will be solved um, or at least reduced you know, until we come up with more technologies to solve things with hydrogen power, for example, and um, yeah, other renewable energy ideas. And um, if we're more careful with how we dispose of our rubbish and waste, then we won't be polluting the earth so much. And um, if we look after nature, the forests and uh, the, the soils and grasslands and the, the ocean, then um, we'll be able to live on this earth in a, in a sustainable way. But it's, it's a, everything that we do is impacting the environment. And unless we learn to reduce that impact, then we are in for trouble. Mike, do you think that there's sort of revolution in the air with the income inequality? Mm. And, you know, if you look forward, you know, let's hope not, of course, but look forward 10, 20, 30 years, we could see worsening problems and worsening effects and the six billion, seven billion who are then lower middle class and below are saying, hey, you know, you know, this is this is not sustainable. We want manifest change. Yeah, I, I do I do think that's right. I think that's exactly right. But what worries me about that is um well, I don't want to be too political, but if you look at um be, be if, political, don't worry. Okay, okay. This one. <laughs> if you I won't mention the obvious example of the US, but uh, if you look in Belarus, yeah. then uh, in terms of politics and the kind of life that people want to live, the young people want to live, the people of all ages, then they clearly want to change from this um, rather domineering, uh, brutal dictatorship that they've got at the moment. And yet um, changing that seems to be terribly, terribly difficult. And I fear for what might happen in the coming years. And, and for me, in a way, that's a microcosm of what's happening around the world, because we see these demonstrations with young people in so many countries being yeah. dissatisfied with the way things are, wanting uh, greater equality, wanting less prejudice, uh, wanting, say, for a better, more sustainable environment. And yet um, the leadership in so many of the countries around the world is polarized at the other extreme, um, concentrating resources largely around themselves and their followers, and maintaining these massive gaps between uh, the wealthy and the poor. Yeah. Are we ever going, I mean, are you hopeful for the future, Michael? I mean, as I said, you've been looking at biological sciences, the environment for, dare I say, what, three decades, maybe more? Yeah, more. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yes i i mean i'm i am my if my wife were in this room she'd say no he's a pessimist but actually, <laughs> actually i'm i'm not i'm a, I pessimist, am, a pessimist michael is just a realistic optimist yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> that's exactly it but i am sort of op- optimistic um i i do think that young people are a bit of an inspiration actually when you talk to so many of you of course there are some morons out there but um, <laughs> There are plenty, plenty of bright young people coming through who are very sincere, very clever. And, and I place my hope in them because I think they will, will do extraordinary things. Angus? I'm optimistic, but I can see 20, 30 years of... Of, of hell, frankly. Of hell. I really, yeah. I think, I think because with any major tide change, yeah. 
And, and Mike will know this, having studied the islands and the oceans off Scotland, with any major tide change, I mean, you can get whirlpools and you can get, you know, you know major disruption. And I think that's what's building here. Uh, the unifying force of, of, of the biosphere, um, especially amongst the young generation. And, and frankly, we've got um, governance systems which are out of date, um, run by demagogues, um, and something has to give, and I think it, I think it'll be you know quite abrupt, quite violent um, in the in the change. Yeah, I think the change. But I suppose the one thing I'd say is, you know, I, I'm an old donkey. When I grew up, you know, there wasn't really enough. An, okay, there was a bit of environmentalism, but you didn't really think about it every single day. And I suppose, at least in the consciousness of most people now on the planet, they are aware. And Michael, that's got to be the first stage. Is people are aware that we're frankly fucking the place up. They know that we're overfishing. They know that they can see the pollution in their streets and coronavirus made that clear by the fact they can breathe a bit clearer. They can see when their cities are, are heaving. So perhaps the, the, the bit of hope is we are a bit more aware than we ever were before. Yeah, I, I think that's a hugely important point. I mean, I'm clearly older than you because when I was uh, <laughs> kind of growing up, um, the people who were really, who, who captured me and motivated me were people like Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, alerting everyone to the, the idea that uh, pesticides were accumulating in food chains and wiping out, you know, the eagles and top predator birds and so on. She also wrote a book called The Sea Around Us, which warned about what was happening in fact, there's a wonderful thing in the Sea Arounders, published in 1953. Wow. Well, I'm not that old, but anyway. <laughs> but she wrote it then. And um, she, there's a wonderful chapter uh, or paragraph that I quote in some of the lectures that I give where she makes the case for the Arctic warming. Uh, she is saying the sea is, is actually warming. Um, so, you know, early signs of climate change there. But, um, you know, going back in the 60s, there was this huge interest in uh, pollution, particularly pollution. Mm. And um, so there was, that was the first sort of trigger of awareness. And that's, of course, when the environmental protection agencies were, were gradually being established in the US and in the UK and so on. Uh, and um, so you're right, that, that's when awareness began but I think climate change has been transformationally increasing awareness. I remember flying over the US a number of years back and there wasn't a solar farm or a wind farm yeah. anywhere in sight. And now when you fly in there, they're everywhere. And like in the, the village uh, where, where I live um, in Devon, a small, couple of small sleepy villages on the side of an estuary, so many of the houses are plastered in solar panels now. That didn't happen in the past. It, it is a slow process and it needs to get quicker, but the awareness is certainly there. And um, there are many of us who are kind of fighting to raise that awareness much more, which is why um, when I um, sort of, I say retired from the university, I may maybe retired from the university, but I haven't retired. So I now um, work with the Eden Project in Cornwall that people will know is a kind of a tourist destination to with giant domes where we're telling people about what happens in rainforests and different kinds of forests. But it's much, much more than that. It's making people aware of Earth's systems, 
and now we're building uh, 35 different new Eden projects, not, not all domes, but Eden projects around the world and um, hope to be, create foci where we can get these messages out about the intimate relationship between people and, and the environment around them, what they need to do. Michael, that's the best way to start because I think that's the first thing we can do and hopefully this series of podcasts just to raise awareness because unless we're aware, we won't do anything about it. Uh, Professor Michael DePledge, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Angus, any final words? Uh, your buddy's not here, so I don't know how you'd step in with your, with your Alex comments. <laughs> I think he'd say he's fine, he's optimistic and he likes regulation. That's <laughs> <the word of laughs> Alex. Uh, ladies and gents, thank you very much. Professor DuPledge, thank you so much for joining us on Gaia Says No. My name is Sumit Bose. Do subscribe to futurenetzero.com. And, you know, we're, what we're trying to say is let's try and get aware. If we get aware, we can try and make a difference. And if we can make a difference, hopefully we can end up in a better place. Until next time, next week, our last ever episode in this hopefully current series, uh, we will uh, be back then. Until then, goodbye. Don't forget to subscribe. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.